0: Good day, my friend, and welcome to another moment, a Black History Moment with Bo. And with the bad weather that seems to be blanketing our country, I hope you're inside and warm and have no intentions of going out in that mess. It seems Mother Nature has a way of protecting us from this virus by isolating us due to bad weather. It works for me. Before we slip into darkness today, I must beg your forgiveness, and that forgiveness is for my sound. I might not sound as your average radio station, because I don't have a soundproof room, I don't have a sound engineer, this is just me. So occasionally you'll hear some popping, you'll hear some cracking, uh, you'll hear something me shuffling papers around, and for that I say I'm sorry. But my intention is to give you a little knowledge today. That you did not have yesterday. And with that being said, let's slip into darkness and talk about that horrific red summer. Confronting a national epidemic of white mob violence. 1919 was a time when we had to defend ourselves. We had to fight back and demand full citizenship In thousands of acts of courage and daring. Small and large individual collectives, neither the defiance of black communities in 1919, nor the racist violence to which it was a response. Was anonymous. 1919 was a moment that reaches back to the Stone Rebellion, Nate Turner, and Robert Smalls, and forward to the Black Lives Movement and the 2020 Rebellion. The racist riots of 1919 are critical to understanding our past and our present. But they want us to stay in the dark. Because if you pull any history book from off a shelf, you won't find no more than a paragraph on the 1919 riots. What you do find is that it downplays both racism and black resistance while distorting the facts and the dangers both sides framing. What these books really do is make our children stupid about white supremacy. And you know, my friends, at this moment of revived racist backlash, today's students, as well as all the rest of us, need to learn the lessons of 1919. In 1919, Charleston, South Carolina, Longview, Texas, Bisbee, Arizona, Washington, D.C., Chicago, Knoxville, Tennessee, Omaha, Nebraska, and Elaine, Arkansas, experienced a wave of anti-Black collective violence, usually problematically termed race riots. And on top of that, white supremacists lynched nearly 100 Black people, and initiated dozens of smaller racist clashes throughout 1919. In Pittsburgh, PA, yes, Pittsburgh, home of your beloved Steelers, the Klan made clear the goal of this bloody work in a printed notices posted around our neighborhood that stated, the war is over, Negroes. Stay in your place. If you don't, we'll put you there. You see, my friends, the trigger for white rage inevitably is black advancement. It is not the mere presence of black people that is the problem, the problem is blackness with ambition, with drive with purpose, with aspirations, and with demands for full and equal citizenship. The term Red Summer came from the NAACP to capture its sheer bloodiness. It is a study in white rage. All through 1919, the exercise of black agency Black veterans wearing their military uniforms in public. Black children swimming in the white section of Lake Michigan. Black sharecroppers in Arkansas organizing for better wages and working conditions. Was met with white mob terror broadcasting the message, stay in your place. How soon they forget. They took us from our place. But in 1919, black people made this place our place. In Knoxville, armed black men organized themselves throughout the black community to successfully repel hundreds of white rioters who had already destroyed The county jail with a battering ram and dynamite. In Chicago, African Americans formed self-defense units after days of white terror in their neighborhood. Many of these defenders were World War I veterans, many who were from the all-black 370th Infantry Regiment, who said, hell, we've been fighting the wrong war. The Germans weren't the enemy. The enemy was right here at home. In Washington, D.C., 17-year-old Carrie Johnson opened fire on men breaking into her home while a thousand white rioters laid siege to her neighborhood. In Anniston, Alabama, a black veteran was ordered out of the white section of a streetcar, and he refused. Kicked out of the car and set upon by the white motorman and conductor, he shot his pistol twice, killing one of his attackers. When looked at, together, these hundreds of moments in 1919, read as an awesome display of collective black agency and self-preservation. Just as contemporary targets of anti-black police violence are often blamed for their own victimization, Mike Brown was no angel. While white supremacists in Charlottesville are deemed very fine people, the white media's coverage of the 1919 riots almost always assigned the blame for the violence to us. We might be dying, but we're fighting back. Because our black press worked alongside black leaders and political organizations to establish a powerful counter narrative, activist William Trotter clarified who was at fault For the violence and what was at stake, which I quote, There will be no peace until white Americans make up their minds to give the colored Americans equal justice and let them share the democracy at home for which our brave soldiers fought and died abroad. The Chicago Defender, black America's most influential newspaper, carefully documented the riots while striking a tone of defiance. America is known the world over as the land of the lyncher and the mobocrat. For years she has been sowing the wind and now she is reaping the whirlwind. The black worm has turned, a race that has furnished hundreds of thousands of the best soldiers that the world has ever seen, is no longer content to turn the left cheek when smitten upon the right. Claude McKay's If We Must Die, a poem written in July 1919, became a kind of anthem for the summer. It concludes... Like men, will face the murderous, cowardly pack, pressed to the wall, dying, but fighting back. And what do students learn of this early 20th century episode of sustained collective self-defense, a crucial moment in the long history of the black freedom struggle? Both Mifflin Harcourt's American History And Pearson's American Journey, two U.S. textbooks used in our schools, devote only a single paragraph to the riots. By comparison, American Odyssey, McGraw-Hill, five paragraphs, focusing mostly on the D.C. riot, seems generous. Unfortunately, American Odyssey's account distorts the history and leaves students mystified about the racism's role in the violence. Southern African Americans who had migrated to Washington, D.C. during the war had been competing for jobs in an atmosphere of mounting racial tension. Newspaper reports of rumored African-American violence against whites contributed to the tension. Following one such newspaper story, 200 sailors and marines marched into the city, beating African-American men and women. A group of whites also tried to break through military barriers to attack African-Americans in their homes. Determined to fight back, a group of African Americans boarded a streetcar and attacked the motorman and the conductors. African Americans also exchanged gunfire with whites who drove or walked through their neighborhoods. By opening its analysis of the riots of black people migrating and seeking work, American Odyssey structurally implies it was the actions of African Americans rather than the white mobs that prompted the violence. It's always going to be us, ain't it, people? This is the same kind of backward reasoning that makes note of Trayvon Martin's hoodie of Tamar Rice's airsoft pistol in explaining their murders. In this framing... We always do something that justifies the violence that follows. White violence is always incidental, never fundamental. The authors of American Odyssey also pretend that black resistance amounted to a single example aboard a streetcar, erasing the magnitude Of the self-defense effort, a black newspaper, the New York Age, celebrated as splendid the reach of the resistance, which included pool room hangers-on and men from the alleys and side streets, people from the most ordinary walks of life. And friends, we found ourselves again in mortal combat. Neville Thomas, an active member of the Washington branch of the NAACP, counted 2,000 African Americans, many of them armed, patrolling D.C. city blocks with the intentions to die for their race and defy the white mob. White people were not being targeted because they walked or drove through black neighborhoods, This is what the American Odyssey wanted to suggest, but because thousands of white people had organized themselves into mobs and black people were determined to protect themselves. These textbooks peddle the vagueness of racial unrest, racial violence, and the most ubiquitous offender Race riots to describe the events of 1919. This gives the impression of groups of black and whites in conflict with each other, responsibility shared by both sides. But there is little doubt about who instigated these riots. In almost every case, white mobs, whether sailors on leave, immigrants, slaughterhouse workers, or southern farmers initiated the violence. African Americans, on the other hand, were not rioting. They fought back, counterattacked, defended themselves. To capture the refutable fact of white accountability, a more accurate term might be racist riot. But racism and racist are terms these textbooks avoid. Even the American Journal, the only book to actually use the word racism in its coverage of the 1919, is not clear on what it is or how it operates. So this is what they wrote. Housing shortages and job competition interacted with racism in 1919 to produce race riots in 26 towns and cities. And the absence of the truth of racism's role in these episodes of anti-black collective violence matters by downplaying the extent to which violent white supremacy shaped African Americans' 20th century experiences, textbooks leave students without the knowledge to fully account for racism as a key force in modern social relations. No wonder the questions of reparation is so seldom seriously entertained in mainstream U.S. political discourse you cannot repair a pattern of harm that you have been taught to neither acknowledge nor understand. When students are given access to the real history as they are, for example, in Linda Christian's powerful lesson on the Tulsa Massacre, which shares many of the hallmarks of the riots of 1919, Reparations no longer seem outlandish, but simply fair. One hundred years ago, black people across the United States met white mob violence with countless defiant acts of self-defense. Today's Black Lives Matter activists fit seamlessly into these century-long patterns of black militant resistance to white supremacy as they mobilize against the violent policies and militarized police that threaten our neighborhoods, as they challenge the corporate media's habit of framing victims of white racist violence as the authors of their own destruction, as they demand we confront the damage the history of of white supremacy as never-ending. It's been a hundred years, my friends. 100 years, five generations, and we're still going through this madness. If you look at the riots in 1919, they are as same as the riots that are going on now. Will it ever stop? Our children deserve the opportunity to identify this through line of black agency, rebellion, and resistance. It is a powerful call to action for all of us. Red Summer is now. And if you have been listening to me regularly, then you know what that sound is. It is that time. And I leave you with this thought. Faith doesn't always take you out of the problem. Faith takes you through the problem. Faith doesn't always take away the pain. Faith gives you the ability to handle the pain. Faith doesn't always take you out of the storm. Faith calms you in the midst of the storm. Until next time, my friends, it has been my honor.